As we open God's word together, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you for your generosity to us. We thank you that you so loved the world that you gave. You gave of that which was most valuable, most treasured to you, and that was your son. You gave him to us that he would come and live among us, obeying the law perfectly, and then laying down his life for us that we sinners deserving of your wrath are able to have life abundantly. And so as your children, we come to your word this morning. We want to hear from you. We want you to feed us. And so I pray that your word would be clear, that me as the instrument speaking it would be accurate, and for all the ears listening, Father, that we would receive it truly as that which it is, the word of the living God. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, it is often in trials that character is proven, that we might know something of ourselves or know something of somebody, but when we go through something difficult, the true tenor, the true character of that person is revealed as they go through those difficulties. And this has been true through history. As we see great events of world history, we see um, coming through those events uh, the true character of people revealed through it. I mean, you can think of even the founding of our nation, the American Revolution, and the true character of people was proven through that uh, great conflict. You just have to name two names, Benedict Arnold and George Washington. Benedict Arnold, known as the consummate traitor, the one who sought to hand over West Point to the British, and then George Washington, who although he was a respected man before the war, as he led troops through battle, uh, through the many years of the conflict of the Revolutionary War, he came out the other side as a man deeply respected and was unanimously uh, selected to be the first president of our nation. As we come now to God's Word, we, we see this beginning conflict of Jesus' arrest and His trial and His crucifixion. This is the great conflict of His life. This is what His life has been gearing towards. And it's in the midst of this that Jesus begins to shine. Of course, we've already seen His character shine through His life, through His teaching. But there are features of His character that are highlighted in a particular way as we see in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the conflict of the cross. He shows himself to be a man who is wholly unlike anyone else. He is unique, unparalleled. He is truly holy, separated from sinners. Holy, we use the term to describe, yes, his purity, unstained from sin, but we also talk about holiness as a separation from sinners, a separation from sin. He's in a class unto himself. He is holy. And so today we continue our exposition of the gospel of Luke, and we are in within, within the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. In fact, he has probably less than nine hours to live as we find him in the narrative here today. He's about 
to be executed. And as we move towards Jesus' ignominious death, we continue to see the contrast of Jesus' character compared with everyone else around him. They are sinners, but Jesus is sinless. They are wicked. He is righteous. They think they're powerful, but Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is holy. He is other. He is unlike everyone else. And this contrast is going to be made clear in our passage that we will examine this morning. And so I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and we'll begin in verse 47 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in the, the pew Bible there in front of you. You'll find our passage on page 1049. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those home with you this morning. We want to get God's Word into your hands so you might read it uh, for yourself. It was two weeks ago. We were last in, uh, here in the book of Luke. And uh, we, you'll remember that we witnessed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was there praying to his Father. He was wrestling with what was about to transpire. He was asking that if at all possible, that God might remove this cup from him. And yet we saw the obedient, submissive heart of Christ as he said, not my will, but yours be done. And it was after that intense period of wrestling, wrestling with the Father in prayer, that he resolved to face the trial of the cross. He rose from prayer, knowing what needed to be done, and resolving his heart to obey his Father to the bitter end. And he, from here on out, he does not waver. And so with that in mind, let's pick up the narrative now, beginning in verse 47 in Luke chapter 22. We'll read through verse 62. It says, While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow... They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down to get together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of an, about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept 
bitterly. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May the Lord bless it before us this morning. Well, in these verses, verses 47 through 62 this morning, we're going to examine four flaws that Jesus confronts, four flaws in others and the people around him that Jesus confronts. And as he does this, we're going to see that this highlights Jesus' own holiness and uniqueness. Again, he is unlike anything else. We should worship him as the holy Savior, in this case, the holy prisoner that we see him to be. And so let's first examine the first flaw that Jesus confronts, and that is Jesus confronts the hypocrisy of his betrayer. We see, first of all, that he confronts the hypocrisy of his betrayer in verses 47 and 48. He was just finishing his instruction to his disciples. You'll look in verse 46, where he says, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then verse 47, while he was still speaking. The words hadn't finished coming out of his mouth when this crowd can be seen arriving. Now, Luke doesn't tell us who is composed of this crowd, who, who, what kind of people were in this crowd. The other gospel writers do. John tells us in John 18, verse 3, he says this, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Luke identifies the group a little bit later down in uh, verse uh, 52, talking about the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders. You see, in the upper room, Jesus was there with his disciples. But then he dismissed Judas. Remember, he identified who Judas was, that this was the man who would betray him. And he tells Judas, what you must do, do quickly. Judas gets up and he leaves the upper room and begins to gather the necessary officers and authorities that he needs. I would guess that he went back to the upper room thinking that he could have arrested Jesus there. But when they didn't find him, they, Judas knew exactly where to find him. John 18 says Judas knew because Jesus would often go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Judas says, hey, he's not here anymore, but I believe I know where he is. And so they march to the Garden of Gethsemane, and sure enough, that is where Jesus was. So in this group, in this nighttime arrest, we have Pharisees, we have chief priests, we have these religious leaders, but we also have Roman soldiers who were there to do the actual arresting, carrying their weapons. But these religious leaders wanted to oversee this important action. Now, you could read this, and, and kind of in light of everything we know about Jesus and everything we've seen about him all this far in the gospel, you can kind of see this crowd, or as uh, Matthew calls it, a great crowd or great multitude, as kind of comical overkill. You're going, really? Do you think that you need to grab this many people, this many authorities with clubs and weapons for Jesus? Has there been any indication in his ministry and life that he is going, there's going to be some sort of armed pushback, that there is going to be some way in which you're going to need a whole cohort of soldiers? And yet, they want to make sure that nothing goes awry. But we need to see here the resolution of Jesus. Again, he's risen from prayer after wrestling, saying, Father, if there's any way, remove this from me. But as soon as he rises, he is resolute about what he's called to do. He doesn't flee. He doesn't hide. Jesus knows what's coming. And he stands there and faces as the crowd come to arrest him. A crowd that, as Luke notes, was led by who? Led by Jesus. 
Judas, rather. The crowd led by Judas. Notice what Luke notes about Judas. He says he's the man called Judas, one of the twelve. This is the gut punch. That the one who is leading the authorities to Jesus, the one who is ultimately betraying, was an insider. He was one of the selected twelve. That way back when we studied Luke 9, that he set apart these men to be about his business, to send them out, to be the official representatives of Jesus, the Messiah. He was one of them. And now he's leading the enemies straight to Jesus. Judas was trusted with everything. Everything was told to him. Everything was revealed to him. John tells us he, had the, he was the keeper of the money bag. And yet he used that trust. He abused that trust. He betrayed that trust to commit the greatest crime in all the universe. John tells us that Jesus engaged the crowd first. They're walking forward and Jesus says, Who are you, whom are you seeking? But here Luke notes that it's Judas who comes forward to kiss Jesus on the cheek. Kissing was a common sign of greeting in, in that culture as, is, as it is in other cultures today. And the kiss was meant to identify Jesus to the soldiers. And you could say, why did Judas need to do this? Didn't everyone know who Judas, Jesus was? Well, maybe the religious leaders did, but the Roman soldiers maybe not so much. They're on duty from some part in the Roman Empire. They're there stationed in Israel. They may or may not know, be able to pick out Jesus from a crowd. In addition to that, it was dark. They're holding up torches and lanterns. They, it might be harder to see, but Judas can't miss the face of Jesus. He knows exactly who he is in darkness or in light. And so Judas was paid to identify Jesus to the authorities, and so here he completes and finalizes what he was paid to do. Identify Jesus so that he might be handed over. And Jesus here, then with Judas approaching to kiss him, Jesus confronts him. This is the first confrontation we see in the text. Look what Jesus says to him in verse 48. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus punctuates the depth of this betrayal with a simple question. A kiss was normally a sign of affection, a way to show that you loved somebody that you were friends with them. In fact, the Greek word here is, uh, is a word for friendship, often used to describe a friendly kiss. But in this case, there is no affection at all. It is a total show, a total sham. It is feigned affection. And this is the greatest hypocrisy, pretending to love Jesus and yet bringing about his death and yet betraying him Judas gave him a kiss that night, but Judas did not love Jesus at all. Judas hated Christ. He happily handed Jesus over to the authorities. He betrayed their friendship. He betrayed his mentor and his teacher. He betrayed his God. Notice how Jesus identifies himself in this question in verse 48. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title that he uses of himself throughout the Gospels, taken from Daniel chapter 7. 
in which he's identified as the great messianic royal figure who would reign over the world, in which the Ancient of Days would give him the kingdom and he would reign forever. Jesus says, I am that Son of Man. And Jesus says, Judas, would you really betray me, the one who will be given all authority? There's great sadness in this exchange. As we see Judas approach to give him a kiss, Jesus receive the kiss and then speak in a restrained manner. Naturally, betrayal brings out the deepest emotions, the deepest anger in us, the greatest desire to lash out against those who have harmed us in such a way, betrayed our trust. And yet here, Jesus interacts with Judas for the last time in such a restrained manner. We don't see him boiling with anger. We see him calmly receive the kiss and confront the hypocrisy. And in this, friends, we stand in awe of our Holy Savior, Jesus, who is unlike us, totally taking on human flesh, identifying with us, but he was wholly other. He was perfect in all his ways. He had no sinful tendencies. Even though he experienced temptation as we do, as the Bible makes very clear, he did not transgress God's law. He did not, even in the smallest way, in the most minor point, disobey anything that God has said in his word. Even when he was the victim of the most heinous betrayal, he did not sin. Peter, who was right there and witnessed these events, wrote this years later in 1 Peter chapter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is our holy Savior. He committed no sin. He is holy other than us, and we must bow before him in love and in reverence. So we see first in this text that he confronts the hypocrisy of his betrayer, but the second flaw that he confronts is the rashness of his disciples. And we see this in the next verses, verses 49 to 51, he confronts the rashness of his disciples. There's, the other 11 are right there witnessing what is going on, how Judas, the one who was there in the midst of them, that was a part of these three and a half years of ministry, comes forward with the enemies. They've got to be seething. They're ready to act. They have adrenaline flowing. And so they very well may have thought, this is the time that the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who's been given all authority to reign, is going to lash out against his enemies. And Jesus, we're ready. We're ready to join you in this great messianic battle. And so they ask him, look in verse 49. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? All right, is this it? Just say the word. Say go. And the question assumes an affirmative answer. The, you can see this in the Greek that they're basically going, we, we should strike with the sword, right? Like, this is what you want us to do, right? And before Jesus has even time to answer their question, one of their disciples, well, the disciples is so overcome with adrenaline and passion and excitement that he lunges forward. 
And look at verse 52, or sorry, rather uh, 50. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. He didn't even wait for an answer. He was, he was so trigger happy, he just went forward. And he lops off the right ear of the slave of the high priest. Now, John, the gospel writer, identifies the disciple who took out his sword as none other than Simon Peter. No surprise, right? And the servant who, he, who got his ear cut off is named Malchus. John apparently had an inside scoop, knew who these folks were. His name was Malchus. Now, we don't know, was Peter aiming for the ear? Probably not. He was probably aiming for the head. The guy dodged and missed, and they managed to just get the, get the ear. We don't know exactly how it goes, but Peter at least succeeded in causing a wound. Peter's action here was incredibly rash and foolish. It, to take the offensive action and to strike with the sword while there's a cohort of Roman soldiers right there is incredibly stupid. Do you realize the amount of uh, military power that is standing right there, the amount of swords that are represented right there? And we already know from earlier in this chapter that they only have two swords total among the 11. So uh, this, is, this is not a good matchup. Again, Peter must be assuming that Jesus is going to lash out in some sort of way. But this was extremely irresponsible. These disciples could have lost their lives. They could have been arrested at this very moment. The tension would have instantly mounted. As soon as those military men saw that a sword was being drawn, that blood was being drawn, they would have been on high alert. It went from a peaceful kiss to a bloody strike very quickly. And so Jesus instantly steps in. Loving Savior, seeking to save his own, he steps in in verse 51. He says, no more of this. Stop it. Stop. And this could have been direct, this was directed to Peter. Hey, stop swinging your sword, Peter. But it very well could have been directed at the, the, the Roman soldiers. They, I, I sense a, a bit of a lunge forward. You hear the clamor of armor, swords being drawn. And Jesus kind of says, no more, Stop. And you go, why would the soldiers listen to Jesus? Well, what Luke doesn't record, John does, and that is when Jesus steps forward and asks, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. And John records that when he says, I am he, all of them fell down on the ground. The power of Jesus' word was exhibited there. They all get themselves up and said, okay, now we're going to arrest you, you know, and they realized that he didn't even touch them. He just said a word, and it knocked them flat. So Jesus says, stop, no more of this. Then go, okay. He's got some more power that we don't necessarily see here. But then John, Luke here records, not only does Jesus stop what is going on, that they should no longer engage in this way, but he, Luke records something that none of the other gospel writers record, and that is verse 51, that he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus healed the servant of the high priest. It's, it's fascinating to me that the other gospel writers talk about the ear getting cut off, and then they just move on. They, they go, if you just read Matthew or Mark, you'd go, man, that guy's just living without an ear. But here we have Luke, thankfully, to tell us that Jesus healed him. Now, we don't know if Jesus had to pick up the severed ear and reattach it, if he had to just touch the place, and he actually, like, enabled a new ear to grow where the old one was. 
Either way, it says he healed him. And all who were there saw it. Again, you wonder what this crowd of soldiers, these crowd of men are thinking. But Matthew records a fuller reply that Jesus gave to Peter. And he says this, he says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus makes it clear that right now is not the time for swords. His work does not advance through violence. He is making it very clear that he is not a zealot nor a revolutionary. He is not calling his people to violence. He says, Peter, I don't need your protective help. Do you think I'm short on help here? I could call on my father and he could send me 12 legions of angels. A legion, by the way, in the Roman army was 6,000 troops. So 12 legions of angels would be 72,000 angels. I think that's enough to handle what needs to be done in order to take Jesus out of the situation if needed. And the point being is that there's infinite help available to Jesus if he asked for it. He's not short on aid. But we know that Jesus wouldn't ask for this. He wouldn't actually ask for the Father to send angels to help him. Nor would he have the Peter start swinging his sword. Why is that? Well, it's because of what the last line of that Matthew quotation said. He says, how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? The Bible, the Scriptures, the prophecies need to be fulfilled. And if he calls down hell from heaven to rescue him out of this, the Scriptures will not be fulfilled. Jesus is resolute on obeying and fulfilling what the Scriptures say. It's like what John records in John 18, Jesus saying, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink this cup, this cup of God's wrath? that is prepared for me. I must drink it. I must fulfill the scripture. I must go forward. We're not going to stop this, Peter. Jesus was determined to go to the cross, which meant he would surrender to his enemies without a fight. Our Savior was determined to go where his Father wanted him to go. Now, our inclination, if we're in a tight spot, is to use every means available to, to free us, to rescue us, to try to win our safety. We only concede when all options have, have been exhausted. I mean, think about all those action movies, right, where the protagonist is, is in a tight spot and he's, he's beat up so many bad guys, but now he's in a really tough spot. He seems to be in a place where he can't get free, he can't get out, and it's only there in that point that he seems to concede. And we hope that as we're reading the story or watching the movie that he's got some extra trick up his sleeve that's going to get him out of this this. Uh, situation. And what we see in Jesus' case, though, is that he had more than one trick up his sleeve. He had a lot more options available to him, but he didn't use them. He refused to use them. And friends, this is selfless love in action. This is our Savior who was not thinking of his own safety, who was not thinking of his own comfort, he was concerned of obeying his Father and going to the cross to fulfill the Scriptures to die for sinners like you and me. This is his selfless love that drove him to the cross. And in this we see another example of, of Jesus' holiness. A separation of something unlike everyone else, every other human. He was pure and undefiled by sin and selfishness. He was the epitome of love. 
In fact, even here in this uh, narrative here, we see the love he had for his enemies. Did you catch that? In his healing of the ear of Malchus. This was the love of Jesus for his enemies. He didn't have to do that. But he taught in Luke chapter 6 to his disciples. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. But love your enemies and do good. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the grateful and the evil. Jesus proved time and again that he was the greatest son of the Most High, that he was the one who most exemplified and embodied perfectly who God is. So church, this portrait of our Savior would remind us that he loved us even when we were yet unlovely, even when we were his enemies, even when we were against him, Christ loved us. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5 makes it very clear. He did not love us when we were lovely, when we were righteous. He didn't put his love upon us because we had cleaned ourselves up and we were suddenly now holy and righteous. And he goes, oh, you look so beautiful. I love you now. No, he saw us in all of our muck and all of our filth and all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our gritting hatred against him, and he placed his love upon us, and he determined to save us and to rescue us in that horrible state. Christ loved us when we were still enemies of him. This is our holy Savior. This is the good news of the gospel. I pray that all of you here this morning would hear this, that Jesus went to the cross to show his love for sinners Sinners like all of us that fill this room. All of us fall short of God's glory. All of us fail to meet the standard of perfection that would get us into heaven. We all have a record of guilt a mile long. And we can't do anything to clean it up. But Jesus went to the cross. That that record of debt and legal demands would be nailed. And would say paid in full. And so that we could no life abundantly forever with him. Do not miss Jesus' love for sinners. It is available to each and every one of us as long as we have breath. That we would turn. We can take a thousand steps away from Jesus, but it only takes one to come back. It requires humility and repentance that we would turn to him. To a Savior who loves broken Sinful people. So we've seen that Jesus confronts the hypocrisy of his betrayer. We've seen him confront, confront the rashness of his disciples. But thirdly, we see him confront the wickedness of his attackers. The wickedness of his attackers. And we see this in verses 52 and 53. Verse 52, for the first time in the narrative, we're introduced to actually who in this crowd is here. Luke hasn't told us yet, but here he tells us that there are uh, three groups of people included in this crowd. Chief priests, officers of the temple, 
and elders. These three groups represented the religious, the military, and the civil leaders in Jewish society. It shows the importance of this arrest that it drew out the top brass of the society in order to oversee this arrest in the middle of the night. Here was Jesus, the magnificent teacher, the miracle worker, as they just witnessed, right, with the healing of the ear, the personification of love, and it came out against him with full firepower. And so Jesus confronts them. He's not going to let them continue on to wickedness without saying something. And first he confronts the, their wicked assessment of him in verse 52 their wicked assessment of him. Look how he begins with a question. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? He, with this question, Jesus highlights the fact that there is no justification for them to treat him like a robber or a common criminal. There's been no justification, no uh, evidence in his life or ministry that would say that they should come out in this way. The word for robber here is the word that we read in Luke chapter 10 used in this parable of the Good Samaritan of the bad guys, the robbers that attack the, the, the man upon the road from Jericho. Jesus is saying, why are you treating me like, like a wicked robber? These robbers were violent characters. And so Jesus essentially asked, who do you think that I am? A robber? A criminal? Do you really think you need swords and clubs like this? This very question, this very confrontation shows that Jesus' attackers, get this, don't care about the truth. They don't care about getting an accurate assessment of Jesus. They don't care about who he really is. They've got their preconceived notions. They've formed their opinions, and they refuse to hear evidence to the contrary because they love their sin, and so they stay in their delusion. They continue to convince each other that this is what they need to do, to keep their power. So first, he confronts their wicked assessment of him, but secondly, he confronts their wicked hypocrisy in verse, first part of 53. His wicked, their wicked hypocrisy, look in 53, he says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. They had many opportunities. They had so many opportunities to arrest Jesus. He was there publicly. He walked without an armed guard. They could have arrested him at other times. He taught regularly in the temple. He did his activities in the open. But revolutionaries, those who are trying to be subversive and and, 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 and attack, they're doing it quietly. They're deluding. They're doing it in the dark. But in fact, who's doing their deeds in the dark, trying to hide what they're doing? Is that Jesus the revolutionary? No, it's the religious leaders who are doing their deed right now in the middle of the night. They're the ones who are actually the criminals. They are the ones that are actually trying to keep what they're doing hidden, thus revealing the wickedness of what they do. Jesus acts in the light of day, but his enemies act in the dark of night. They didn't arrest him during the day. Why? Because Luke chapter 20, verse 19 says that they feared the people. 
They feared the reactions of the crowd that they would all, there would be a riot against them. And so, out of their fear of man, they waited until they could get him at night. And so they hypocritically pursued Jesus at night. They wouldn't do it during the day when their reputations were on the line, but they'll do it now at night. But thirdly, Jesus confronts their wicked authority. Their wicked authority, end of verse 53. He says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. I believe that in this, Jesus is saying, this is your hour. This is where you are going to succeed. You are going to go forward. But this is the authority, the power of darkness. You are not acting according to the light, according to the day, according to the Lord. You are acting according to the prince of darkness. They were not working for God. They got their marching orders from Satan, the devil. What was about to transpire was satanically motivated and inspired. It was of the authority, power, and dominion of darkness. He is the one influencing these men to strike the shepherd. He is the one seeking to bring down Jesus. And yet Jesus knows all of this. He knows what's going on behind the scenes spiritually. He knows what's going on physically as these, Judas has gathered these men. And here he reveals the truth of their actions. He recognizes this is your hour. You're going to win, guys. I know it. This is the hour that the domain of darkness will reign. But he also knows that it's only temporary. The domain of darkness will not reign forever. In other words, in God's sovereign plan, he had ordained for Satan to get a win here through the cross. And yet here, as this conflict is surrounding Jesus, the battle is not just between flesh and blood. It was not just the bad guys versus the good guys. This was a battle against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This was a cosmic spiritual battle that was going on. And it was a battle that Jesus would ultimately win. Again, this might be the hour of darkness, but Jesus would ultimately win this war. God would turn the greatest evil into the greatest good. As Satan was making his victory lap, God was disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. It was through Jesus' death that the devil was rendered powerless and sinners were delivered from lifelong slavery, as Hebrews 2 so clearly says. And so, through the cross, because of what Jesus accomplished, each time a sinner repents from their sin and trusts in Christ, they are turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. You see, every one of our salvations each time we were saved, we were turning from the power of Satan to God. We were turning from darkness to light. And that's only because of the victory accomplished on the cross by Jesus Christ. Satan thought he was going to get a win. And it was certainly going to look that way. But three days later, Christ would rise from the grave, showing that death could not hold him. And that ultimately God would have the final say. And so we stand here in awe of our Savior, who knows exactly what's going down, that knows exactly what hell will unleash upon him. And yet Jesus knows he's the only one who can defeat Satan. 
He's the only one that could defeat the devil. He's the only one who could deliver us from that power of darkness, from the authority or domain of darkness. He's the only one that can rescue us from the power of Satan. And so he goes forward with that, going towards the cross to obey his Father and to save us from slavery. Once again, Jesus is in a class by himself. He is holy other. He is the holy Son of God. But there's a fourth and final flaw that Jesus confronts in this text. That's a famous one. It's found in his friend Peter. And so here we see Jesus' holiness when he confronts fourth and finally the failure of his friend. He confronts the failure of his friend. Now, interestingly, it's not up until verse 54 that Jesus is actually arrested. That paragraph we've already covered, Jesus wasn't officially arrested yet. He wasn't seized. But here in verse 54, they seized him, led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. This high priest's house, John 18 tells us, was Annas's house. Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15 A.D., But even though he stopped being the official high priest, he was still a powerful man in Jerusalem. He retained significant influence. His son-in-law was Caiaphas, who was the official high priest at this time. So you had Annas, who was kind of the patriarch high priest, not currently serving in that role, but still had great influence. And then you had Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. Annas, in addition to the son-in-law who was high priest, he had five other sons who also served as high priest. So you can see that Annas was a man, the patriarch of this high priestly family. He held a lot of sway. I believe that they shared this home in Jerusalem. In fact, in the last century, they have discovered through archaeology a great home there in Jerusalem that has been dubbed the Palatial Mansion. It was uh, evidence of being destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but it was Uh, It's called palatial because it had such beautiful artwork on the inside, beautiful colors. And it's also huge. It's a 6,200-square-foot home. And this agrees with Matthew's description in Matthew 26.3 that calls it a palace. And this was a large home built like other ones of the time, built around a courtyard. And I have a diagram uh, for you to see that shows uh, this Home. Some of this is cut away, so you can see uh, the entrance would have been to the right, which was on the, you can see the slope of the hill there is built on a hill. The, enter, the house would have been entered from the right and uh, come down into, and right in the kind of in the middle there, there's a square courtyard that was open to the air, and the other places were covered with a roof, although cut away for uh, the diagram purposes here. But you can see how there's a, a square courtyard in the middle, and these rooms and these halls were built around it. The hall that is uh, to the right of the photograph, the kind of the longest one that you see there, is most likely the one where Jesus was being held on trial before Annas and Caiaphas. There in that hall with Peter warming himself, as we'll see, in the court, that square courtyard in the middle. We see verse 54 that Peter followed at a distance. He was... Um, In the garden, as Jesus was arrested, the other gospel writers say that they all fled, they all left Jesus alone, but then Peter and John begin to follow 
to see where they were taking Jesus. We only know that John followed from a reference in the book of John. John had some insider uh, connections, and he was able to get in. He then looks and sees that Peter's still outside, and he goes and talks to the servant girl who says, hey, can you let in my friend too? And so he lets Peter in. Peter then comes in, and he warms himself by the fire in the courtyard. And it's there as he's sitting in the firelight, warming himself, this, the servant girl, and John says it was the same servant girl that let him in the door, begins to study his face and goes, hey, wait a minute, this man was also with him. No doubt there was conversation going on around the fire about this man, Jesus, about these proceedings that were taking place in the middle of the night. And as they're talking about Jesus and his disciples and his followers, and then the girl realizes, hey, wait a minute, I believe this guy was with him. But Peter, out of fear, denies any association with Jesus and says, woman, I don't know him. Verse 57. And so then, in this, uh, in this first denial, Jesus denies any, renounces any association with Jesus. He says he doesn't know him. He's, he's not with him. But verse 58, it says, and a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. Here, Jesus not only denies his association with Jesus, he denies his association with the other disciples. You are one of them, and he says, I am not one of them. I am not among that group. Peter's got to keep his story straight. He's got to stay consistent. He's afraid of being outed, maybe arrested, because he's right in the heart of the enemy, the enemy territory. He's concerned to protect his own skin. Peter remains in the courtyard, verse 59, and after an interval, he says, of an hour, about an hour, another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And this time, this man insists. It's a strong word that he's, he's emphatic. No, 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 I know. You are with this guy. I know it. Matthew notes that it was because of his Galilean accent. His words, his accent gave him away. And, of course, we know that local dialects can be hard to hide. If you had someone with a thick southern accent come to California and try to claim that they weren't from the south, you'd say, I'm sorry, but your accent gives you away. Same is true here. The, those from Galilee had a certain accent about them that those in the south could pick up. And so he's called out, Peter is. Now, Peter doesn't answer the charge directly. Oh, no, I don't have an accent. No. Peter just does this blanket denial. Verse 60, man, I do not know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. But then verse 60 says, and immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The rooster crowed. For the past hour or two, as Judah, or Peter rather, has been in this courtyard, he's been hardening his heart. He went in and trying to protect his, his own skin, and as the, the confrontations came, he continued to harden his heart and protect himself. He continued to, to fall deeper into his own deception, and thus the lies continued to spout outward. But now the rooster crows, and it all comes back to him. His heart softens. He, he remembers. 
And most notably, we have in verse 61 a note that, again, Luke notes that no other gospel writer notes. Look at verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Wow. What a powerful look. For Jesus, while he's being questioned by this sham court that we'll look at next week, and, and as, as he's being interrogated, Jesus hears the rooster's crow. And he turns his head and he looks and his eyes lock in with Peter's. No doubt Peter hears the rooster crow and turns to look at Jesus because it was Jesus who prophesied, as Luke reminds us here in verse 61, that he had said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And so their eyes meet. It was just a simple look, and yet it was a powerful look. We all know the power of a look. It can communicate a lot. In this case, there must have, been one, must have been one filled with deep emotion. I don't think it was a I told you so look or a deeply angry look, like how could you? I think it was a look of deep sadness and yet deep love. It showed that Jesus' heart was not to crush Peter, but to humble him. And it says that Peter remembered these words and he melted. He remembered that Jesus had warned him not to give in to temptation, to pray, to fight, to stand firm, to throw himself upon the Lord. And instead, he relied upon his own flesh, upon his own strength, and he had failed. He had given in to temptation, and he had denied his Lord and his friend. And so as he meets eyes with Jesus, his heart breaks, and he runs out of the house weeping bitterly, weeping intensely. The pain of his failure was more than he could bear. He was not the strong disciple that he thought he was. In the upper room, with great bravado, he had said, I will never deny you. Sworn he would never desert the Lord. He would stand firm to the end, even to death or imprisonment. He would pay any cost to remain loyal to Jesus, and yet it was just a few hours later that he was a broken man. He had totally failed. And yet this look of Jesus, friends, gives us here another portrait of how Jesus is unlike anyone else. He was the holy prisoner. He was the holy Lord. His love for his own is a holy love, unlike any others. He loved Peter. And even though this was Jesus' darkest hour, he was still ministering to his friend and disciple. And this is an illustration of Christ's love for us, that Jesus has love and patience for us when we fail in our lives as well. Peter, the preeminent example of one who has failed his Savior. Do we fail Jesus? Yes, we do. But there is forgiveness that is found for us. Indeed, there is sorrow in Jesus' look. There is sorrow over our sin, but his love will never diminish. Friends, Jesus does not love us less because of our sin. And there's nothing that we could do that would cause him to love us more. It's already at a level 10 if we are in him. And yet we can so often forget this. We can cause our own sins and our own failures to shrink away from Christ, to think that he loves us less, that he's just a scolding one looking down at us. But instead, he in sadness has his arms open and wants us to come back to find forgiveness. He says, I shed my blood that you might be forgiven. Why would you run away from me? I've done all that is necessary that you might be forgiven. 
It's not about what you do. It's about what I have done. I have satisfied it all. I have paid your debt. It's paid in full. This indeed is astonishing love. And Christ proves to be the holy refuge for failing sinners everywhere. For us today, for us this morning. If you find yourself in the category of a failing sinner, I have good news for you. Jesus is a savior for you. But all you need to do is to repent, to turn 180 degrees away from your sin and turn and embrace Christ completely. And when you come to him, he says, I will by no means cast anyone out. And so we see the holiness of Christ as he confronts these different groups on this night of his arrest and his betrayal. But I want to leave us this morning with two questions for us to consider. Two questions for us to think on as we, as we go this morning. The first is, do you revere Christ as holy? Do you address him with reverence? Is the holiness of Christ supreme in your heart as you approach him? But secondly, what, if anything, holds you back? from embracing Jesus and enjoying the love that he has for you? What, if anything, holds you back from fully enjoying and embracing all that Christ can be for you? Identify that and then run to him. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word this morning that reminds us of all of who Christ is for us. That he is the Holy Savior, that He is the one who has redeemed and saved us, that He is the one who did all that was necessary that we might be accepted into your family. Oh, Father, would you work in each one of our hearts this morning that we would see Jesus for who He truly is, not only the Holy Christ, but also the Holy Savior who has given Himself for us. And may you cause each one of us to relinquish our sin, to renounce it all as loss, and to cling to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.